We're good. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Welcome everybody to the Nothing But Facts live stream from Safina Society. And we are here on a Wednesday, which is the day in which we discuss the affairs of the Ummah. Remember on Wednesday between Dhuhr and Asr was a time in which the Prophet got the answer of his prayer and his dua for the conquest of the Battle of Al-Ahzab which was a major battle, uh, also known as uh, the Battle of the Ditch, Al-Khandaq. All the Ahzab came in. Ahzab means the groups. They all came in and ganged up on the, uh, on the Muslim Ummah and tried to literally destroy Medina and kill the Prophet ﷺ and all of the major Sahaba. Uh, but, of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, no, nobody could stop his plan when Allah wills something. And the Prophet had made dua on Wednesday between Dhuhr and Asr, and he was answered. He was given the sign that he will be answered. And then the wind came and blew away uh, the tents and made the, the, the encampments of the enemy miserable. So don't forget to make dua and to empty your heart to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you can't empty your heart to Allah, then who are you going to talk to? Think about it. People will get sick of you. And there's a wisdom when people get sick of you. People get sick of you. It's a sign okay, that you're not supposed to be barking up those trees anyway. So you're supposed to be going up to uh, your your creator and getting your, your needs fulfilled through dua more than anything else. Now, after you make dua, you got to work, obviously. We know that. But uh, I don't think working is ever the issue for the for most people. It's belief in the unseen that's, that's it's harder. You can tell people to work, they'll accept that. But tell people the truth and reality of things, it's faster to get done through the unseen in terms of guaranteeing the end result. All right? Most people, that takes a lot more iman than the concept of work hard and you'll get your result. So in any event, now we're on. We got two stories today. Both stories show us nations that built their unity and their strength on, on faulty grounds and how the, the global nature of the world and how the refugee crisis in the world is breaking up their order and it's breaking up their, their, their culture and it's ruining their momentum. That's really what it is. It's really ruining their momentum. The global nature of the world is breaking up. Our first story takes us to the Muslims in South Korea. All right. South Korea is one of the most successful countries in the world. Samsung comes from South Korea. Of course, you know, in the entertainment industry, they're pretty popular, I guess. Uh, yeah. Do you watch K-pop? You into that stuff? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so wear a nice little suit, get skinny. And, and wear some really neat sneakers, right? So um, K-pop is uh, on the cultural side. Samsung, Hyundai. Hyundai, by the way, I got to fix that real quick. Hyundai, by the way, is, is, is making moves. Their car is nice. Their Genesis is really nice. Even the regular brand, Hyundai, their truck is, what's their SUV called again? The Hyundai, whatever it is, is really nice. Kia, I think is Korean, right? Kia used to be some little sportage, whatever, but now they have they have an SUV that's all dark, all blacked out, everything black. So these companies are, are making moves. Korea is a place, it's a really strong country. But the the what made Korea what it is is a really strong ethnic background and a lot of unity and not a lot of diversity. So you always think that, isn't it preached to us that diversity is a wonderful thing? Diversity is a wonderful thing when it's when it's superficial diversity, right? Once it gets deep, it actually becomes a problem. So uh, diversity of 
things that are not in your control is always good, right? But the Koreans, according to this article, I'm reading here from the New York Times, how multiculturalism has become a bad word in South Korea. So they built their 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 the strength of their nation on Korean identity. And now the refugee crisis that's forced them to take some Afghans to 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 not even just refugee, they don't have enough laborers. So they bring in a lot of people from Pakistan. They bring in a lot of other people to do menial jobs that the Korean self don't have the manpower anywhere to do. And this to them is ruining their mojo. It's ruining their momentum. So I say to them, on one hand, um, that's you're right, it is ruining your momentum. But on the other building a nation and building anything solely on geographic or solely on ethnic grounds, it's faulty to begin with. Human beings are always moving around. All right. It's like unreasonable to, to imagine ever that there's just like there's ever been a time where it's just this group of people. There's always people moving around. So it's not it's not a smart idea or long term to build upon solely on ethnic grounds. OK, so let's read the article and see what it says. All right. Daegu, South Korea, inside a dimly lit house, young Muslim men. Knelt and prayed in silence. Okay, outside their Korean uh, uh, neighbors gathered with angry protest sign saying a den of terrorists okay, are moving into their neighborhood in a densely populated city, all right, an area called Daegu in southeastern South Korea. A highly emotional standoff is underway. 150 Muslims, mostly students at the near city, started building a masjid. In a, uh, in a lot next door to the temporary house of worship about a year ago. When their neighboring uh, Koreans found out, they were furious. Okay. It's now an enclave of Muslims and crime-infested slum, they called it. All right. And it has a lot of noise. And it smells of food from an unfamiliar culture. So they, 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 the curry is getting to them, I guess. Oh, well. You guys invited them. Your your government invited them in. So why, you, you know, go go protest your government. Okay. The Muslim students and their Korean supporters fought back, arguing that they had the right to live and pray in peace. Ahmed, what is going on there? Yeah. Uh, why why you gotta go? Where where's my uh where my curtain rod then? My keys are here. The Muslim students and their Korean supporters fought back and they said they have a right to live in peace. All right, one of the most politically conservative cities. There is a difference between protest and harassment, says Mu'ad Razak, a PhD student. So they're not all menial jobs, right? This is a PhD student in computer science from Pakistan. Uh, what they were doing was harassment. So listen, your government invited them in. Now, we, I, I actually have a position about you know going out and move. Now, can you take that away? We don't want that. We don't want that right here. No. No. Keep it. It's your. Uh, there's a big difference between. There's, there's also, by the way, we have rules and concepts on moving, right, to another nation. So, on one hand, we're sort of bringing ourselves. Nobody said to go live amongst machine who hate you, right? And that's what the majority of the South Koreans are. They don't like you. But you went there yourself. So on one hand, there's a limited sympathy on one hand. On the other hand, there are some people who are purely refugees. There's nothing else that they could do. 
such as they brought in about 300 Afghanis and they brought in some 500 Yemenis. Your house gets destroyed. You're going to go to the first country that gives you a house, right? So on one hand, I sort of feel bad for them. But the willing uh, migrants or not, there won't be like immigrants, you willingly went to another nation. So, okay, so now accept the result. Am I wrong about that, Ryan? What do you think? Right? Like if I, if I actually willingly go to your country, then I got to taste what, I got to accept whatever you give me. If I'm a refugee, it's, it's a different story. Right? The way I look at from another perspective, this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala making sure there's Muslims in every country in the land, in the world. And that's true. And I think that we're at that point where there are Muslims in every single country. So maybe there, Allah definitely has a wisdom in that. There's no doubt about that. Okay. So now the fault line between the two communities here has exposed an uncomfortable truth in South Korea. At a time when the country enjoys more global influence than ever, consumers are eager to dance to its music, drive its cars, and buy its smartphones. It's very true. They're, it's a very successful country in terms of these, these three demo, uh, industries, culture, cars, and technology. Samsung. It is also grappling with a fierce wave of anti-immigrant fervor and Islamophobia. Now, on the other hand, who's to say that they have to accept diversity? If that's their religion and that's their country and that's how they want to do things and that's their philosophy do things how they want right diversity is not some kind of universal law that everyone has to accept so they don't want to accept it all right it successfully exported its culture abroad but it refuses and it is very slow to welcome other countries cultures at home that's also their choice right my opinion it's their choice maybe it could be wrong but it is their choice now, the mosque dispute has become a flashpoint, but it's part of a larger phenomenon in South Korea that they've had to confront with an increasingly diverse society. All right? Muslims often born bore the brunt of racist misgivings, particularly after the Taliban accepted uh, or sorry, executed two South Korean missionaries in 2007. That's also the Taliban's government. That's their you went to Afghanistan. They got their own laws. You should have read their law book before you went preaching Christianity there, right? So I, I sort of have an issue with when you got a country and they outline their beliefs and their laws, then you go and you get bitten by their laws. I sort of have a problem with you complaining. You went with your own two feet, right, uh, to, to preach in Afghanistan. Shouldn't you have read their laws, right? You broke, we're breaking their laws. Their law, you like it or not, they have a law. And it's execution. You should have read it. It's your fault. If you don't like the law, that's a whole different discussion. Here you have the Pakistani brothers going to Korea. Who told you to go there? You went with your own two feet to do your PhD there. So accept the discrimination. Accept it, right? Don't go and try to change them. If you come to my house, we're going to sit maybe on, on the floor in one room. We might sit on another room. I'm going to serve you Egyptian cooking. You can't tell me, um, I don't like it. It's not spicy enough. You came to my house. So accept the situation. So again, refugees aside, the willing people who travel to another country then whine and complain. Uh, it just it doesn't work like that. It doesn't seem to work out. Hey, uh, Osman, can you throw me that chapstick? All right. Now, 500 Yemeni asylum seekers on the island of Jeju. Thank you very much. Trigger South is first series of organized anti-immigrant protest. Okay, the government responded 
to fears that the asylum seekers were harboring terrorists by banning them from leaving the islands. Okay, so you invited them for asylum and now they're trapped in your country. All right, anyway, the one lady says, or not, I don't know, I don't know if it's a lady, it's a leader of a refugee out, a nationwide anti immigrant network that opposes the mosque. Their rules on hijab alone are enough reason that they should never set foot in our country. Well, she's free to, it's Lee Young Ho. I don't know if that's a man or a woman, but she's free to explain. Government let them in, so go complain to your government. Many Koreans explain their attitude towards foreigners by citing history. Their small nation has survived invasions and occupations for centuries, maintaining its territory, language, and ethnic identity. Those who oppose the mosque and immigrants and immigration more broadly have often warned an influx of foreigners would threaten South Korea's pure blood and ethnic homogeneity. We look exclusionist, but this has made us what we are. I totally agree with him. It's true. National unity. Now, the problem, national unity, is what makes you strong, but at the same time, the basis of you on purely ethnic and, and uh, lines, it, it's something that's bound to fail because human beings are always moving around. Okay. This has made us who we are, consolidating us as a nation to survive war, colonial rule, and financial crisis, and achieve economic developments while speaking the same language, thinking the same thoughts. I totally agree with the guy, right? I don't think we could have done this with diversity. We are not xenophobic. We just don't want to mix with others. I personally have a lot of those same sentiments, except that my grounds are different. My per personally, it's going to be probably more, well, 100% more related to matters of taqwa and deen because that's people's choice. Whereas how you're born is not your choice. That's the big difference uh, between us. So you're going to have unity, but what's the basis of unity? Is it going to be skin color? where you're born, or something that you choose to do. How you choose to live makes more sense as a basis of unity. How you, What you choose to believe about the world around you, all right? Much more sense than making it about what you're born with. All right, some say the country does not have much of a choice. No, you don't have much of a choice because then the way the world is now, the way the world has always been. It's just that immigration was always slower in the past. Now, you've taken the globe and you shook it up and everyone's everywhere else. South Korea's rise as a cultural powerhouse has coincided with a demographic crisis. Years of low birth rate and rising incomes, okay, leads to a shortage of women who, all right, which leads to a shortage of population. So therefore they have to import. So that's your problem. Right, and then import other people and then oppress those other people. It's not going to make sense. All right. Local. He probably got a, a better, a great price, a price he couldn't refuse, right, for his PhD. To help alleviate these challenges, South Korea opened its doors to workers and students from other nations. Rural men began marrying foreign women. Okay. Yet when the government introduced policies to support multi multicultural families, there's a backlash. So this, this is really a problem between the people and their government. They're not seeing eye to eye. And the antipathy has not been limited to Muslims. Okay. 
Last year, anti-China uproar forced a developer to cancel building a Chinese cultural center uh, in the in Seoul. Okay, and he had a lot of backlash. And a, a Ghanaian entertainer in 2020, an entertainer from Ghana, okay, he was criticized blackface performances, and he was forced to apologize for that for criticizing blackface. Koreans have deep-rooted xenophobic beliefs that foreigners are inferior. Okay. But they value foreigners differently. So they treat black Americans different from black Africans. All right. And then it, it, that's basically the summary of the whole thing. So they have two people going for the election. One of them is, is more left-leaning and he's open to diversity. And the other one is a right-wing populist. All right. And that's basically the summary of it. So the summary of it is, again, you have a nation, they themselves, they don't know what they want, right? On one hand, they need immigrants to work and to be students. On the other hand, they want to keep their national unity. So the summary to me is, well, you're whining and complaining. It's really your fault. You didn't have enough kids, right? Close your borders, have more kids and close your borders. That's your solution. Right. So globalization has po positive connotations among South Koreans, but they need to realize it involves an exchange of not just money and goods, but culture and people and their religions, blah, blah, blah. OK, um, so this is the first article that we're sharing here about these nations that are based upon nationalism and ethnicity, which is something doomed to fail. So you just sit back and watch as all anything based on nationalism or just simply ethnicity or where you're born just sit back and watch as it eventually fails and collapses okay that's the first story you have a comment ryan yeah i think the person meant it rhetorically but i'm gonna just open it up anyways yeah someone asked why do we have to live under the kufar authority and go through this trauma like why can't we just live freely as an ummah and practice our deen right so I, what's the wisdom in, in living in these conditions uh, the firstly, he is 100% correct. You should be living under your own law, right? That's what, at least, you know, in the, most of the Madahib, they want you living under your own law, right? But it just so happens that, A, the countries, the Muslim countries have been so uh, poorly run that they become poor and people just are seeking livelihood elsewhere. And then you have ref you have wars in these countries. So there, you got Syrians, subhanAllah, I think like maybe one half of the Syrian population, they all had to flee. But where are they going to flee? Egypt? Lebanon? These countries are, are struggling as bad. So they end up going to Turkey. Okay, that's a Muslim country. But then going to European countries, going to other places. So on the one hand, there's refugees. And on the other hand, people, without much regard to the deen in the general, they just they want to go live where they can find success. And it's one of the things that, no, it shouldn't. Uh, be happening generally right it shouldn't be but it is what it is that uh if you want to make hijra go make hijra you you you, you hard, it's going to be hard to find a muslim country that'll take you like five five hundred thousand dollars and you buy a, a property a lot of countries have this law like if you buy a property that's more than three or four or five hundred thousand dollars nine year you know visa so but it's it's not easy to go Muslim, move to a Muslim country. We have a bunch of a group of others try to move to Malaysia, failed. Like the paperwork was just it didn't work out, right? So 
In any event, we are on to the next story where it's identity based upon tribal lines. And that is this really interesting story. Far-right Jewish extremist girl discovers her biological parents are Palestinian Muslims. Right? <laughs> Man, she was in for it. Okay. Her name is Or. Or Liebler. That's her name. Her name is Or Liebler. Right. This was just published okay, uh, a couple weeks ago. She's a member of a Jewish supremacist group. And she's a proud Jew. Not only that, she's like a provocateur. She goes and she tries to provoke the Muslims, right? The Palestinians. All right. She's adopted. She was adopted when she was like a month old. And she was always having problems with her family. And she was always like, she's a problem child. She ends up finding peace with like extremist Jewish identity. And she goes around to Muslim areas with the flag and cursing the Muslims and saying, you know, Israel is peace and you are terrorism. Okay. She's 20 years, 22 years old, and she's a well-known figure amongst Muslims and Jews in the old city of Jerusalem. She's an annoying provocateur. That's that's all she is. She she, she became increasingly involved with a far-right group. Okay. And Channel 13 News picked her up, all right? They picked her up, that she's part of this far-right group. And her group was the same group as the Rabbi Mayor Kahana, who was killed in New York City like a long time ago in the 90s. Despite living in southern Israel, she, she commutes weekly to Jerusalem and walks around with the Israeli flag, all right? Her activity has been described as a deliberate provo uh, provocation, okay? And she says, she shares her videos and she bothers the people of Sheikh Jarrah, which is an area that they were trying to remove everyone from. And she says, anyone who supports Palestine is a terrorist all right, or potential terrorist. I have a problem with Palestinians who don't recognize the state of Israel, who don't recognize me as a Jew. I see them as murderers for all intents and purposes. All right, you can see what you want. Doesn't mean it's true. In another video, she can be seen holding the Israeli flag. She said, this is peace. And the Arab-Palestinian flag is murder and Jew hatred. Well, I mean, you hate Palestinians, right? She hates Palestinians. So why is it okay for her to hate Palestinians and not okay for the other way around? Anyway, who cares? It's just a bunch of babble. They're out for our blood. It's that simple. She's just babbling. Okay, She's getting her anger out. That's all it is. Now, what's her background? She was adopted when she was 30 days old. Her biological parents were drug addicts. All right, so not every Muslim is an angel. These guys were drug addicts. Guy, at least, uh, the, you know, a guy and wife. Bonnie and Clyde, but rather than murdering and stealing banks, they were doing drugs and giving their kids for adoption. Doctors had to clean my body from drugs for about two, three weeks after I was born. Now, her adoptive uh, parents... There were Jews from northern Israel. They gave her a new life, but she was always causing problems until when she was 18, she abandoned them completely. All right, she abandoned her parents completely. They were supporting and loving, but we went our own separate ways. And then she was interested. All right, she got into this right-wing group, fought assimilation, fights the Palestinians, blah, blah, blah. And then she said, and she told, tells Channel 13, I guess uh, Israeli TV station, I got curious where I came from. Then she had a, her own baby. She had her own child. 
and she went uh, to her files because at, at a certain age, you're allowed to go into your files, right? So she goes to her adoption files and she's got the shock of her life. My father was a Muslim and my mother was a convert to Islam. Her mother is originally Jewish. So technically she's got, she is actually technically Jewish because it's a, it's a birth thing, right? Judaism is a birth thing. It's not something you just convert to. But her mom converted to Islam and is totally against what she's doing now. My whole world fell apart in a moment, she says. Okay, I'm a, I'm a 20-year-old single mom and I'm going through an identity crisis. Your identity is suddenly shattered. What am I really? That's what I'm saying. Like identity is an important thing, but it's really about what you believe. That's more important than who you are, your background. So Liebler says, I have nothing against Muslims or Islam, but I'm uh, uh, I have uh, uh, the the... The discovery of my parents' identity has been a challenging blow. I can't describe what it feels like. I'm so happy being Jewish. It's something that comes within me, and I want to shout, I'm a proud Jew, she says. And it's not easy to know that my parents were Muslims. And I stand in front of the mirror, she says, and I say, I'm not a Muslim. There's no way I'm a Muslim. You've already formed your ideology. You already know which way you are headed, and then it hits you that you don't belong, and and, if, and I feel I don't belong there. I don't belong with my parents. So she gets uh, to visit her biological parents. They're married. She goes to visit them, and she says, meeting my mother was very cold, right? And I could not, I didn't feel like I belonged in their house. It wasn't, this is not where I came from. I felt unrelated to my mother. I hugged my father out of respect, but there's no love. Of course, there's no love. They give you away, Right? If your parents gave you away, aren't you going to feel like some kind of weird feeling towards them, right? A while later, she receives a message from her friend. She says, go check your TikTok, your mom commented. The, the video was Liebler shouting at Arabs in Jerusalem. And the mother says, this is my daughter, but I'm ashamed of her. Oof, that's a tough blow. She said, that's it. I took it to the next level and I became more entrenched in my extreme beliefs yeah and i started looking for more confrontations with arabs i'm telling you this girl she's she's not right she's going to go to such an extreme she's going to swing to the opposite that's what happens when you go to an extreme you snap and you go to the opposite extreme so now here it is two years later she's raising her little baby girl and she really craves to renew her relationship with her biological mother you can't break these things you can't break a relationship biological relationship with parents you just can't break these things right she said but it's going to take time it's going to take time because i'm we have completely different beliefs and i guarantee you this this girl it's her her the basis of her all of her activity to me is emotion it's not like some thought out thing it's emotion and the proof of that is she got more emotional when her mom said something bad about it but now I let's watch this story over the next few years. She's going to swing back. She's going to snap and swing to an, maybe an opposite extreme. All right, let's uh, open it up here. Make sure you put your questions. And it's got to be related to this issue of identity that is based upon identities that are based upon um, geography and birth. In other words, accidents. These are accidents. We call these accidents of your existence. All right. 
as opposed to identity that is based upon uh, ideas. All right, ideas. All right, here we go. Uh, if you commented on Instagram before, I can't see it. I just opened, so put your comments in the little question box. All right, here we go. Let's start this. Could you please share again which story this was? We read two stories today, one from the New York Times called, the New York Times story was called Mosque, uh, ba -ba -ba. how multiculturalism became a bad word in South Korea. That's New York Times today. Ryan, do you want it to share it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, how multiculturalism became a bad word in South Korea. I can't airdrop it to you, unfortunately, right now. Because uh, you don't have an apple, I think, to, unless Oz has an apple. And then the other one was Times of Israel. Times of Israel. Uh, extremist, far-right Jewish extremist discovers her biological parents are Muslim. Uh, it's really going to be interesting story to follow. Next. I've become confused by Aqidah. Does it take you out of the fold of Islam if you choose the wrong Aqidah? No. I'm just going to answer this question because it's a fart, right? It's an important thing. The only thing that takes you out of Islam is negating what brought you into it. And that is one thing with its assumptions, which is karimat shahada la ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, with the assumptions that are known to go with it, which are what are the assumptions? Everything known in religion by necessity, right? That's what makes a person a Muslim. The shahada, and if they negate anything known in religion by necessity, then they're outside of Islam. That's what puts you out of Islam. And then if other mistakes in Aqidah, as long as they're followed by the swaths of Ahl-Sunnah, the Asha'ira, the Maturidiyah, and the Hanabila, that's what's accepted in Ahl-Sunnah. And by the way, if you just simply say, you know, I'm just a Muslim, and you try to just uh, go about your life, that's acceptable too. But I believe that you need to study because today's world mixes so many ideas and there's so many ideas, you know, flying around that you, sh you should probably get educated is better. All right. Grown up has, he says, I feel bad for her. Surely Allah will take her parents to task for how she's turned out. 100%. Uh, you give up your daughter like that. You know, on one hand, people do make mistakes, but that's a really bad mistake, especially the dad. You're a thousand percent responsible for that bent. Next question. Brian, what you got? How do we work on improving racial issues within the U.S. Muslim community using the Quran and Sunnah? Uh, how do you go about solving racial issues uh, using the Quran and Sunnah? All I believe in is practice the deen as we're told to practice it, right? And uh, racial issues, you break it down to three levels your beliefs then your actions then your heart that's how i would break it down if your policy what is the policy that you that you've you know concocted for yourself about racial issues that should solely be informed by the truth by the book and the sunnah next your actions yes you may believe something but your your actions have to match what you believe whether by force or not, right? By force or by choice. Secondly, nothing, none of this works unless it's truly coming from the heart. So now you have to start monitoring your heart. If you find in your heart something that is against somebody for a reason that is just 
uh, out of their hands and it's not justified by the Sharia, you have to fix your heart. How do you fix your heart? You ask a lot of to change your heart. All right, next. Remember, we are not doing anything other than the topic for today, which is uh, the topic of the day being identity based upon geographic issues, bases, or birth bases, and the story of the Muslims in uh, uh, South Korea, and this uh, woman who was a right hardcore right wing type of um, Israeli activist discovered, lo and behold, her mother converted to Islam and married a Muslim. All right, what you got, Ryan? Uh, we don't have any question right now, but I was thinking, yeah, maybe you can, because a prime example of how to do this the right way, how to move to a different country. Um, is Habib uh, Ahmed Mashur al Haddad, right? Yeah. Like maybe you could tell that story of how, you know, he, he went to a different country but didn't try to bring his own way and yeah. it worked. Habib, that's a good point. Habib Mashur al Haddad's story is an amazing story. When Yemen had a, um, a crisis and they had a civil war, and the communists, the Marxists took over Yemen, South Yemen, the communists took over. A lot of the scholars had to leave. So he went and established his home in Jeddah, right, Saudi Arabia. And he stayed there for six months. That six months. Then he would go to Uganda, which had a decent Muslim population, but it was not, I don't think it was 50-50, but it had a lot of Muslims. He would go to Uganda for six months to live there and do dawah. And the way he did dawah there was that he respected their ways of doing things and their culture and their traditions. His method of dawah was going to the tribal chiefs and being very generous to them, being very nice to them, and then also slowly introducing them to what he felt that they would most relate to. So he'd give them clothes, he would give them food, he would give them uh, support, financial support. But also, the first thing that they would do is when they would eat, they would sing the Qasidas, the Yemeni-style Qasidas, right? And he realized they loved it. They loved it. So they would do this. And then... Um, it is said that some of the them, the some of their men, got up to start dancing, because it's like a festival. It's almost like a, a not a festival, but it's like a uh, when you when two tribes meet and you do your thing, and we're showing you our culture. Then they got up to do their thing and showing the Muslims their culture. He never objected, right? So that's how their meetings went about for for a while, but then. He started to say, they started bringing La ilaha illallah as the chorus of the beat, right? And they accepted it. They started singing with that, right? This is the story that I was told in England by some of the the, the, the old murids of Habib Ahmashul Haddad. They live in North London, Zone 5, all right? Beautiful brother named Sayyid Shems. And they accepted that and they enjoyed it. They enjoyed the food, the gathering, the, 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 the whole culture of it. Slowly though, they, as they warmed up to it, the tribal chiefs, they accepted the theory of Islam too. So there's the culture of it first is what they enjoyed. And then they eventually took on the, 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 the aqidah of it. And when the chiefs took it on, all their people followed. So the total end result of his life there is about 130,000 Ugandans became Muslims, right? Because of that, right? Then when they offered him a position of power in the country, he said no. Right, he left. They tried. By the way, the the previous king 
the king that was there at the time, he didn't like it. He was a Christian. So he didn't like any of this. So he plotted to kill Habib al-Mashur Haddad. He ended up killing his son. So Habib al-Mashur paid a dear price for his dawah. He lost his son. Now, when that, ki- that, that king tried to put a hit on Habib al-Mashur Haddad himself, he wanted to kill him himself. Like, or in other words, uh, try to kill him again. But there was a coup. And who took over? Idi Amin. Now, Idi Amin, he had a relationship with Habib al-Mashur Haddad. He had a past. What was his past? One time, Idi Amin was a poor soldier. And he lived down the street from Habib al-Mashur Haddad. They didn't know each other. But Idi Amin's mother was sick. And they heard there's a, there's a great sheikh who can do ruqya. So Habib al-Mashur Haddad did ruqya on his mother, or that's how the story goes. Right, and so Idi Amin came to no- learn about Habib Mashur Haddad when he was young, and came to love him. Eventually, well, Idi Amin is not some angel. Obviously, you know his story, right? Idi Amin is like a hilarious dictator. The only bad part about him is he's actually like a murderous lunatic, right? But he is a comedian. He truly is a comedian. At the same time, no, he. I think he died. Idi Amin. He then. Well, he's a, he's he's really loopy. The, of the way he kills people and for no reason, right? So, but funny story about Idi Amin is that when England had a, had a when their stock market crashed, he established a nationwide movement of collecting food and goods for the British, right? As <laughs> a comedian. Then um, he eventually requested and he said, I'm coming to England. Now, when a king comes to England, you gotta, and I'm, I'm demanding a, a meeting with the queen. So he goes to the queen. Now, the British were very unhappy about this stunt of his and sending food to England, right? So the queen meets him and all the, you know, the ministers are all there. And he goes and he says, you know, the queen says, oh, oh, you're welcome. Would you like to speak first? He said, yes. He said, I'm really here, you know, to know because you have the best British, best shoes are from England. Could you advise for me what kind of shoes I should buy? (laughs) Are you nuts, right? The guy is a nut job. That's literally what he said to the queen. So the British guys are like, you seriously the king of a country, right? And they, you know, ended the meeting real quick and he left. There's Majnoon. But thing is that he took a liking to Habib Mashur Haddad. He ends up, before the king puts a hit and kills Imam Haddad, Idi Amin takes over. He does a coup and he takes over. And then Idi Amin says, come and, and be the, the official sheikh of the country. Now, Habib Mashur Haddad knows that this is a problem because if I work under this man, right, and he likes me, you don't want everyone to like you. You don't want a, a killing dictator who's insane to like you because you're, you're going to be associated with him and you're going to be viewed as a supporter. So when that happened, Habib Mashur Haddad packed up his bags and he never went to Uganda again. He left Uganda, and he settled permanently in Jeddah. Okay, so that's a good example. You'd never want to be sponsored by someone who's an oppressor. So, uh, good example of how to balance between this this stuff. All right, next question. Who do we got? So, we have a question from Muhammad. Muhammad. He said, how much can we change who we are? Our innate character, can this be changed? How much can we change who we are? What, what's the question related to? 
I think we can, we as Muslims can adopt knowingly for a purpose. If it's for a purpose, you can adopt another culture. Businessmen do it all the time. To respect that culture, they will learn all the customs. Why? Because I have something to gain out of it. I have a lot of money to gain out of this, right? We have, when we go for dawah, we should learn that culture and respect it because it'll be easier for people to accept our message. In the same way the Prophet would speak to people and Allah had inspired them with their dialect. So he would speak with their dialect, use the words that they use, use the accent that they have. All right, Ismail Khatib of Pasha International. He says, I think expectations should be different between France, for example, and South Korea. France sought out Muslims' countries for colony for colonization and left them no choice to leave. And Korea has not. Yeah, that is true. There's no reason to really hate on Korea in the sense of their past. Their past, they didn't do what the French did. The French went, they destroyed these nations, and then because their birth rate was so low, they went and they bought some of those people to do the labor. Well, Korea doesn't, there's no reason, they don't, there's not a, not a lot of that hatred for Korea in Islamic history or the, the recent Islamic history of colonization or, 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 or Muslims' history of uh, being victims of colonization. But at the same time, their birth rates went low, that you invited these people in. You should have told your people, get ready, right? But they didn't. So the people don't like it. So this is, again, it's a disconnect between the people and their government. You're letting them in, but the people don't want it. And who ends up suffering? The people that you let in. Okay. All right. Let's hear it. Can a convert to Islam who has never had a relationship with his father and whose father has since died change his last name to one of his choosing? Uh, this question is about last names and changing the last name of your father if you have no relationship with him. The last name, in one opinion, is simply a nickname. Okay. What matters is the son of type of name. So that you're not allowed to lie about whose son you are. But last names, if we look at the last name as a nickname, then yes, you can change your you can change your last name. You can change your first name. You simply cannot lie about who you're the son of. You cannot say, I'm the son of someone else. Okay. Now, you don't have to announce the world who you're the son of. But if asked, you definitely cannot lie and say, I'm the son of another person. That's what's forbidden. But last names for us, in the, by the shari terms of things, are just nicknames. So Ashami, Al-Maghribi, right? All these are just nicknames. What matters is, is who you admit your father is. Now, you're also under no requirement to tell people who your dad is. Right? There's nothing in Sharia that says, tell me who your dad is. And I, I don't have to talk to you. I don't have to tell you. So, from that aspect. From another aspect, when it's like women who have families and have fathers, and they marry another man, from the aspect that your, your, your last name is sitting as a placeholder as the son of. Nobody says, you know, Fatima, daughter of Ali. Right? Nobody says that. You say, Fatima, you know, Ahmed. That's the last name is Ahmed. So that it would hurt the father, would offend the father, you dropped the last name. I raised you, right? Why would you drop my last name? So in that respect, it would be makruh to drop that last name, right? Here, Here's a question. Let's say this girl decided to become a Muslim. How would a person like her even begin to cope with denying everything she's known since she was born? 
how do you completely restart as a person after going in a completely different direction your whole life? Well, here, here's the thing. That's why it is actually forbidden, haram, to deny people the knowledge of who their parents are. Like all these adoption agencies, they close the file and you have no clue who your parents are. Till you turn 18, then you have the choice. We said that is not the way we would take on foster children. Yeah, you're allowed to take on a foster child, but you have to tell them who they are. You have to tell them, we are your foster parents. You are actually from XYZ country and here are your parents. You got to know who your parents are, right? And secondly, well, of course we have other rulings and, and, and there's the hijab issue when you take on a foster child. And the solution of that is, is, is the milk nursing. If you become milk siblings and milk parents, then those that's not an issue anymore. Uh, Sharif Al-Din says, is this also not the moral behind the story of Fir'aun and Musa? Very true, right? Musa, alayhi salam, he discovered later in his life as an adult, as a young adult. Wait a second. I'm actually, dis I'm from the people that were, that are being persecuted here. Okay. How do you undo the effects of racism and Islamophobia from your psyche? Well, how do you undo the hatred of people from your psyche is to is to connect with the origin of the creator, uh, origin of their creation. This is your creator and their creator is the same. And if Allah wanted, he could have swapped you. So why, what you're hating on, it could tomorrow it could be yours. Allah can make that you. And we have a saying that says, no believer has ihtiqar, despises another Muslim, except that one day Allah will take what he despises and put it inside that person. So if you despise someone for how they look, how they behave, anything about them, be careful. Allah Ta'ala may make you into that person. You're going to have all those attributes one day. So be careful what you despise. Now, it's also something may enter your heart that you despise something. You just simply say, oh Allah, I recognize this. It's wrong. I don't uh, accept it and remove it from my heart. Inni bari umminhu inniya akhafullah. Next question. Um, do you think there is something special about America and the religious tolerance, or do you think we will face the same problems that Muslims have faced in other countries? Uh, are we going to face Muslims in America the similar situation as what's being faced in other countries? I would say in the middle of the country, yes. And on the edges of the country, we'd more face a backlash for our beliefs than for, for our colors and our, our being Muslim. So the, the edges of the country, California and New York and all these, these the, the more liberal parts of the country, they will accept you as a Muslim as long as you're a liberal Muslim. But the moment you express a belief that is against their woke ideology, watch what happens to you, right? In the middle of the country, just by the way you look and by your Islam and your brown skin. Now, not all Muslims are brown, by the way, but every Muslim is going to have, you know, most practicing Muslim will have a beard and hijab, right? Just by that, you're going to be out. So, uh, I pro believe it or not, I actually think there's more hope in the long term in the middle of the country through local converts. Like local converts can create a different environment in the middle of the country. But the edges, uh, I think, is like, uh, is harder. The edges, I think, is harder. The 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 uh, liberal areas is short term easier, long term I think would be worse. 
Because in the middle of the country, like the, the right wing, they're not trying to change your beliefs. They just hate you. They don't want you here around. But they're not trying to change your beliefs. So if you end up surviving there and probably through their local converts, in their own converts, their own families who enter Islam, that's the best way to survive. Then you'll survive in the long run. But on the edges of the country, they are trying to force their beliefs down your throat. They have to, they, you have to become, you know, what they believe in or else they're going to put some label on you. They'll make up a word and label you with it. That's my, that's my analysis of things. And someone could differ, but that's my analysis of things. All right, here's making hijrah. We, we, we talked about making hijrah and the ruling on making hijrah. Today's topic was on, uh, if you missed it, we talked about the Muslims in South Korea, how South Korea has invited them in, but the South Koreans, all their success was based upon their national identity. It's getting broken up now by Yemenis, Afghans, and Pakistanis, and they're very upset about this. And then uh, the second story was about a Jewish extremist who discovered her parents are Muslim. Now this question says... Is the girl still mukallaf? Like this girl who got a whiplash in her life, is she mukallaf? We say by our measure of things, and of course Allah has his measure, but our measure of things, she's mukallaf as long as she can, her, her mind is sound and she can understand statements and she can talk and she can understand right from left, right? You're mukallaf. Now she may have a bigger challenge, but I've seen people with worse situations enter Islam. All right. Next question. What is a Muslim's Muslim woman's role towards her adopted parents? What's that? Wait, what is me... what is a Muslim's role towards their adoptive parents? I'm oh, sorry, sir. What is a, the ruling of a married woman's duty towards her adopted parents? A married woman's duty towards her adoptive parents. She uh, she must um, she has to stay loyal to them for what they did for her in and that loyalty is expressed by making sure they're happy and if they have needs she may ask her husband to help with their needs right she may ask her husband to help and the husband should in our sharia if there's no one to help your wife's parents that uh, obligation can fall upon you yes it can't fall upon the husband so financial needs and emotional needs that's basically as much as possible How to practice to self and cure your heart from spiritual diseases? Uh, intensive dhikr. One of the best ways, let's say you're a lazy person, right? And you want to do this, but I, I don't want to recite, I don't want to do dhikr. I'll give you the simplest way for a lazy person to do dhikr. You get your headphones and you put the Quran on in your headphones. And you look at the word of Allah, the name Allah. Looking at that is ibadah. That's it. Do that for 15 minutes. Right? And if you want it more intensive, do that three times a day. Or two times a day. You will find that nur will enter into your heart and wash out all this gunk that's in your heart. But follow that consistently. The headphones is a great invention. Because when you got headphones on, it completely knocks out all the other noise. It's complete focus when you got your headphones on. And listen to the Quran on headphones is an amazing, easiest way of purification. And now that we got earbuds, I mean, you could be at work and doing this as long as you're able to give it its due respect. And if not, that, if you can't, then dhikr. 
because you can talk and work while dhikr is going on in your earbuds. Now, I don't know if you wear earbuds all the time, what's going to happen to your brain in 10 years. Nobody knows, but... Can you, thicker, can you do thicker? Can you do in the shower or when you're not clothed? In your heart, yes. Can you do thicker when you're in your sh in the shower or not clothed? In your heart, yes. All right. Next. Um, hammer after hammer of Islamophobia by mass media, cinema, social media videos are spread by Hindus. It's made this brother worried. To the point that he's stressed out and he can't fight Islamophobia after technology has come. What should he do? Islamophobia is something Allah, to, uh, what is, uh, I'm not even a fan of this word, right? Allah told you they're going to hate you and fight you, right? So don't look at it too much, though. You can't look at this stuff too much. You can, you're only one human being, right? You're only one person. You can only do what you what, you, what 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 you can focus on your sphere of influence, and looking at your sphere of concern, you're going to waste your time, right? We're concerned with the affairs of the Muslims every Wednesday on this thing, as a Sunnah that the Prophet wants us to be concerned and 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 by the way, aren't we gaining some knowledge about what's going on in the Ummah? Like we did Norway, we did Sweden, we did France, we did what was the other one we did? India. Now we did South Korea. So this is nice. It's like giving us, but on the other hand, yes, although it's all bad news, but it's also goes to show you how vast our ummah is. There's Muslims everywhere, right? It's a vast ummah. So from that aspect, you know, it's positive. So you can't, you can't get rid of all these people. It's too many millions of Muslims to get rid of. So, uh, you know, don't look so much at your sphere of concern. You should be only looking 90% of the time at your sphere of influence, what you can influence, okay? Your own self, your own house, your own family, your own friends. And the sphere of concern, you know, at that 10% of the time. So maybe I think this brother may have lopsided it. He's always looking at the affairs of the Muslims, but nothing about what you yourself can do, right? And what you yourself can do is going to be a small little thing, but that little thing will grow if you pay attention to it. Um, Incentalia says I missed the second part You put headphones You listen to the Quran And you look at The image There are certain images That is good for you It's ibadah to look at Amongst them The page of the Quran Right Which in this case Is the name of Allah That's where the value is If you're not going to recite the Quran The Kaaba Right The Kaaba The Prophet Sallallahu said It's ibadah to look at it Even the picture all right. And this brother says he did, he started working on his 1000 salawat today. I'm telling you, this is the way of the awliya. And if you keep it up, subhi. Subhi is a classic, like tech, Turkish and Egyptian name, subhi. Right? Um, I'm telling you, this is going to change your life. 1000 salawat a day, never missing a day. Never miss a day. Can you make salawat while doing regular tasks? Is it lack of adab? No, it's not lack of adab. You can. You can do that. Especially while cooking. Okay. Uh, Real Madrid or PSG? No, I'm going to go with... Uh, I like the PSG branding is better with Jordan. Yeah, I like that. I like the Jordan thing. Yeah. Yeah. Is this a weekly series, says Noah Academy? We're on Monday through Thursday. We shoot to be on at 1.30. We're always on at around 1.30, give or take uh, half a 20 minutes. 
And it's also shared on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. It'll be there. Every, every Wednesday, we're on Affairs of the Muslims. Do you think the Mahdi will come in our lifetime? Allah Adam. But get ready for yourself to be... To, to, when the Mahdi comes, what is he going to bring? Sharia, right? You already have the Sharia. So learn it, practice it, and pass it on. And you're already part of his, his army from before he comes. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to prepare people before he comes. So you really want to be those. Safa says, I heard witr is wajib in the Madiki method. It doesn't mean it's wajib. What it means is that, okay, it means that if you leave in the Madiki method, if you leave off a sunnah mu'akkada all the time, then there's something wrong with your religion. Your deen is, is, is defective. You shouldn't leave it off all the time. If you leave it off once or twice because you got tired, Salat al-Witr, then that's not going to be sinful. But if you leave it off all the time, then there is a, they just simply say that your deen is defective. You don't want to be defective. All right, Ryan? So you mentioned the uh, Wednesday du'a in the beginning. Yeah. So there's a couple of questions about du'a. Someone asked, what is a good du'a to read for protections from evil neighbors and criminals? Protections from evil neighbors and criminals is um, a great du'a for that is, You recite that three times in the morning and three times in the night. Three times in the morning, three times in the night. And if it's if it's big, it's like imminent. Then there's more that a person can do, such as Hasbi Allah wa Ni'mal Wakil, five hundred times. Why five hundred? I don't know. The ulama say that they actually say four fifty too, right? I don't know why they said four fifty, but it's a number that they say. Yeah, a lot, a lot. Hasbi Allah wa Ni'mal Wakil. I have two questions on what is your view of Ahmad Rida Khan? I mean, I have an excellent view of him. But that's not the topic for today. Our topic for today is the Muslim affairs on Wednesdays. Is it a sin to recite Quran with bad tajweed? If you have the chance to learn, then yes. If you're lazy about learning, then yeah. You got to learn tajweed. Basics tajweed. You don't have to become a great reciter. You just have to have the basic uh, tajweed. If one is exiled from their homeland and dies of natural causes... Are they martyrs? If they are refugees, Palestinians, Syrians, Uyghurs, and Yemenis. I don't believe that that's one of the things that is martyrdom, but it does elicit a lot of sympathy. If they die in the process of leaving their home, yes, we can consider that martyrs because he's it, it, the, the, from the martyr is the one who fights for his life and his wealth and his home. So in this case, it is a type of fight for his home, even though he's fleeing. So we can say, yes, that may extend into it. But if he does eventually emigrate to another country and lives years normally and then dies, then no, that would not be martyrdom. If simply someone died because of the difficulty of the journey, such as those Syrians who died, for example, traveling across the sea and every, everything, that's martyrdom yet. Okay, here's a question. Advice for students of Dean who feel stuck and they feel like they're not progressing? And they're demotivated by household toxic family behavior. Female. Simple question. 
Simple answer. I mean, your your friend group is what's going to motivate your himma or demotivate your himma. And that's why we created a MyArc View online crew, right? Ryan can post all the details. MyArcView.org. We have classes. We have WhatsApp groups. All of our classes are discussion-based. Like we have fiqh is all discussion. I give the class and it's discussion. Tafsir, it's a class with discussion. So that people can make friends and have support group, a support group online if they don't have it where they live. Some people live in places where they don't have a support group for seeking knowledge. So that's the whole point of my arc view. And we have a basic uh, route and a scholarship route. And by the way, this September, my arc view is going to be completely redone to the point that it's going to be way 10 times better than what it is now. Next question. We can take one more question and we wrap up. Okay, here's one. Lastly, because I guess this relates to the girl who was put up for adoption. All right, so let's take this one from HKK924. How does a child reconcile the things a parent has done to hurt them mentally, verbally, etc.? I believe that um, a lot of, um, I believe that marriage, half of uh, one of the best things about marriage is that you undo the things that happened to you in your past. So, your wife may be like, oh, why are you so angry, right? What happened to you in your past? And you have these little, you know, discussions about, you know, what happened in my past. And she has a different perspective. I think that marriage, when you marry and someone has a different perspective than you, in these types of things, it's really helpful. So the first thing is you can marry. Second thing is a lot of dhikr will, will ease the anger, okay? But really discussions with people who have had different types of backgrounds is really good, especially your spouse, because you're going to talk more about your spouse. They're going to see your issues. They're going to see the kind of, um, you know, they're going to know you inside out and they're going to see the problems of your past. Your childhood are going to manifest and they're going to be able to walk you through it. I believe that that's one of the, the, the best ways to, to fix it. Next question, Brian. Last question for the day. Is Islam compatible? No, no. Is democracy compatible with Islam? Is democracy compatible with Islam? Hmm. Democracy as in we all get to elect a ruler? No. And not that everyone gets a say in electing the ruler. The ruler in Islam is selected by the people of ilm and fiqh. Right? People of ilm and fiqh, they come together and they select one who is the most qualified one to rule. And law... Law is something that we also have sharia for that. And we have uh, certain laws are not going to be changed. And certain laws can be changed. Secondly, major thirdly, I should say, major decisions for the nation are asked, Allah will ask the leader. He cannot democratize this and say, well, okay, you all voted for it. Now he executes it. No. You all voted to go to war with Mexico. No, you, they the shura of knowledgeable people will give their advice. They know that the pulse of the people. They know knowledge. They have knowledge. They have wisdom. They learn statecraft, which is you know learning the politics, etc., global politics, economics, etc., uh, diplomacy, all that stuff. 
then they give their advice to the ruler. The ruler ultimately makes a decision, and that's his decision. He has to sleep with it. Okay, he may accept or reject. But this idea of democratizing everything from who leads us, what kind of law we have, and what our policies should be, that isn't that's not something that that's not the way that the Prophet brought. Okay. He brought a way of an Amir and a Shura. The Shura they represent knowledge and they reflect the interests and needs of the people. And they are they select from amongst themselves or from amongst someone the their leader. Now they have selected him and given him the responsibilities, they have to obey him. But the, he also must take shura from them. He must ask their counsel. And then ultimately, he doesn't have to he go by the vote of the council. He goes by what he believes is correct. And everyone has to follow that. Right? All right. What is the official start time for the live? It's 1.30. All right. From here on, I pinned it now. Right? <laughs> it's, it's me to blame. Right? Sometimes I got something to do. And we come at 1.45. But from now on, all right, Ryan, you're going to have to hold me to this. From now on, 1.30 on the dot. Okay. 1.30 on the dot. And last question, can you stare any modern awliya that you can mention? We just uh, gave a brief summary, if you rewind a little bit, of the uh, work of Habib Ahmed Mashur al-Haddad in Uganda. Or Uganda. All right. Jazakumullah khairan, everybody. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Wal asri inna al-insana lafi khusr. إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته